I like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. Another week, another update on the state's migrant crisis. As a reminder, more than 110,000 immigrants seeking asylum have arrived in New York City over the past 14 months. That's overwhelmed city shelters and services and led to warnings from New York City Mayor Eric Adams about the city's financial stability. And as we told you, progress on managing that crisis has been slow, with a lot of finger-pointing and placing blame. But this week, we finally saw an update. The Biden administration agreed this week to grant temporary protected status to hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans already in the country. That will allow more of those migrants to get jobs and provide for themselves, rather than waiting on the government to help them out. And according to Governor Kathy Hochul, that's about 40% of the state's current load of asylum seekers. She met this week with President Biden in New York City. We are a compassionate community, but we also have limitations on what we can do. And we have to find the right balance. And if these people could work and they could take some of those very open jobs in pizzerias and in, and in delivery and healthcare on Staten Island, I think there'd be a change in attitude because they are the answer to a problem. And that's what I'm working so hard with the White House to achieve. Let them work. Back in D.C., meanwhile, House Republicans held a hearing on immigration policy where New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli railed against the cost of the migrant crisis, which Mayor Adams has said could cost the city more than $12 billion by 2025. Over the next year alone, we will spend enough money to cover the entire budget of Dallas, Texas, meaning for the cost of sheltering migrants, New York City taxpayers could pay to man every firehouse, police station, pick up the garbage, maintain the water and sewers, inspect the buildings, run the airport, and even cut the grass in Dallas parks, a city of 1.3 million people. We'll continue to keep you updated on that situation. Turning now to education in New York, which we've been covering for the past few weeks with the start of the new school year. And that's the case for college students as well. We're about a month into the new semester. And for SUNY Chancellor John King, it's his second year on the job, laying out his vision for SUNY. And the data shows that's something that may be needed. In just the past decade, enrollment at SUNY schools has gone down by about 24%, according to state data. But this year, SUNY has some new ideas to get more people to enroll and finish a degree program. At the same time, it's the first year that colleges haven't been allowed to consider race as a factor in admissions, after the U.S. Supreme Court banned that practice earlier this year. So for SUNY, right now is an inflection point between the SUNY that was and the SUNY that will be, under Chancellor King. We spoke in the studio about all of that and more. SUNY Chancellor John King, thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course, anytime. So we are a few weeks into the new semester at SUNY schools. How's it going? Anything different this year that we should know about? Yeah. It's been a great start to the school year. A lot of positive energy. Yeah. Uh, we're cautiously optimistic about enrollment. We're seeing a number of our schools, some, some growth in, in the enrollment of new students. Mm. Um, lots of interesting initiatives and areas that are really important to the state's future. Uh, programs in the semiconductor industry, renewable energy, um, lots of programs trying to address shortages in the healthcare uh, workforce. Oh, yeah. um, and then just the, all the positivity of the beginning of the school year when all things are possible. Talk to me about the enrollment thing. So SUNY has seen enrollment kind of decline over the past decade. Uh, how does that look like? So we are seeing more new students come on board. Is that? Yeah, we're hopeful. We won't have final numbers for another couple of weeks, but... Uh, 
we're generally pleased that uh, our outreach efforts over the last year have had an impact. You know, yeah. we sent letters, for example, to every 12th grader in the state outside of New York City telling them there's a place for them at their local community college because we want all New Yorkers to know whether it's at a community college, at a four-year institution, at one of our university centers, in a grad program, there's a place for them at mm. SUNY. Uh, so we're hopeful that that had an impact. Uh, we also did a lot of outreach to high schools, um, trying to make sure that students knew the range of options available yeah. to them. Uh, that we have an environmental science and forestry school if you're passionate about climate, that we have a maritime school in the Bronx if you're interested in the shipping industry. Sometimes students don't know about those options, maybe that are further from home, and we, we want them to be aware of those. Uh, the other thing we're working on is trying to make sure that the students who start finish yeah. and investing in that uh, because of an investment the governor made last year with the legislature in a transformation fund, a $75 million transformation fund. We're investing in wraparound supports, better advising, transportation assistance, uh, just-in-time financial assistance when students face a crisis so we can help students complete. We're implementing a program called ASAP, which has been shown to double community college completion rates. Wow. Uh, and we are looking forward to seeing some great results as we scale that across the system. What's that program? Talk to me about that. Yeah, so ASAP was originally developed at uh, the City University of New York. It's a mix of supports for students who are willing to go full-time to community college, uh, advising a pathway towards a career, um, uh, transportation assistance in New York City, that means a metro card, yeah. uh, um, as well as financial assistance when students face um, sudden challenges. Car breaks down, have to move suddenly, mm -hmm. uh, need books for the semester, and don't have uh, the resources. And again, the program showed these incredible results because students need that support, but with that support, they can make progress towards their degree. And so now we're going to scale that across uh, 25 of our campuses, two-year institutions as well as four-year institutions. So you're really coming at this from all angles, from the outreach angle, reaching out to students, saying, hey, there's a place for you at SUNY, providing more resources and support. So do you think that that, that strategy will get you on that rising enrollment trajectory that you're looking for? That, that's the vision. Yeah. You know, The other thing we're trying to do is help students move from workforce development programs that might be short-term into degree programs. So mm. we've got about 360,000 students in degree programs across SUNY, but we've got 1.3 million students who take classes. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, they're taking a course because that's something they're interested in, or they're pursuing a certificate or a micro-credential. And we want to move some of those students into degree programs by showing them that the progress they made through that certificate or micro-credential, that can be the starting point for pursuing an associate's or bachelor's degree. You know, those, those micro-credentials that you're talking about, people pursue them often because they may feel that they're prohibited from college for some reason. For me, when I was going to my undergrad, and for a lot of students, the cost wasn't so much the tuition. It was the room and board. I, I was paying double what I did tuition just to stay there and have a great meal plan that I enjoyed very, very much. Uh, you know, as chancellor, as you're looking around the state is to bring costs down, is there any way to target room and board at these campuses? Yeah, look, you're right about the challenge. You know, we, we work very hard to keep SUNY affordable. 53% of our students across our institutions don't pay tuition at all. Right. And our tuition is just over $7,000, uh, which is about 30% lower than our peer state. So we're working hard to make it affordable. Room and board is a challenge. It's part of that total cost of attendance. 
One of the things we need is help from the federal government. Um, you know, in 1980, the federal program to help low-income students, the Pell Grant program, yeah. covered about 80% of the cost of college. Now it covers about 28% of the cost. And what's happened over that 40-year period is the cost has been shifted to families and students, often in the form of debt. And so we really need the federal government to step up, double the Pell Grant. That would make a huge difference uh, for low-income students being, being able to have the support they need. Yeah, that would make a huge difference. I, I was a Pell Grant recipient. It made a huge difference for me as a student, you know, going to college, feeling a little bit more secure in my financial footing while I was there. Um, I, I think you're right. That would make a huge difference for a lot of people. Um, you know, as we're talking about money, there are other things that you're doing at SUNY too. You have a big operating aid increase from last year. You received $1.38 billion in operating aid. It's about $178 million more than the prior year. Tell me what you're doing with that, because I'm reading that you're doing things with childcare, you're doing things with food pantries, and, and huge benefits to the community. Yeah, look, we're very grateful to Governor Hochul. She really believes in SUNY, wants SUNY to be the best statewide public higher education system in the country. Uh, she worked with the legislature to make a, a very significant investment, the largest operating aid increase in 20 plus years. Mm. And we're focusing those resources on what students need. We were able to put $10 million towards supports for students with disabilities, $10 million towards mental health services, $10 million towards internships, uh, $10 million towards research, and we were able to work with our campuses to get them an increase in operating aid that then they're using to invest in academic supports and academic opportunities. Alongside that, uh, we're investing in food security. Uh, we know, unfortunately, that a recent National studies show 22% of college students are food insecure, meaning they're skipping meals because they're trying to save money. Yeah. Um, that's really scary. We've got to make sure students have the support they need. Hungry students can learn. And so many of our campuses, almost all of them, have food pantries uh, so that students can access food on campus uh, who, who have need. Uh, we also are helping campuses provide staff support so students can get the SNAP program, the Federal Food Assistance Program. Uh, that's an important investment. I was at Niagara Community College earlier this week announcing an expansion of childcare. Yeah. Uh, the governor and legislature put um, $10.8 million of additional funding towards childcare expansion so that we can help student parents succeed. You know, if you're a, a working parent, you're trying to get your uh, degree at a community college, affordable quality childcare can be the difference between staying in school or not. And we wanna make sure we're addressing that. And those would be, those are on-campus spots, right? It's not the parent has to drop them off across town and then go to school. Exactly, and it's, and it's so wonderful that they're able to have their kid uh, with them on campus, in the campus-based childcare. Sometimes they're able to visit them during the day. Yeah. Um, it, and it's, you know, it's that peace of mind, knowing your child is in a good, safe place so mm -hmm. that you can focus on your studies. You mentioned mental health as well. We're talking about mental health in grade schools a lot right now because kids during the pandemic, their whole way of life changed for a few years. It was the same way for college students uh, in, a, in a different way, I think. Uh, how do you see that moving forward in the SUNY system? You have some students who started when COVID started who haven't graduated yet, who I imagine went through some sort of trauma because of that. How do you help your community move forward after this? Yeah, it's really hard. Look, I, you know, I, I'm a parent. My, my daughters are 17 and 19. Yeah. Um, during the COVID 
uh, most intense period when school was closed basically for a year. Yeah. Uh, I had a freshman and a senior in high school. And despite a lot of privilege, it was an incredibly hard year. Being disconnected from peers, from teachers, uh, having to adjust to online learning, not having extracurriculars, really hard. Yeah. Uh, so I worry a lot, particularly about kids who are in vulnerable situations, uh, difficult home situations, difficult financial situations, how hard that period was. And we see it in our students, the impact. So there's sort of three levels. One is we have invested in a telemental health system across SUNY, uh, led by SUNY Upstate Medical Center. Uh, that's been a really effective resource for uh, the vast majority of our campuses so that mm -hmm. students can have access to immediate support. We also, as I mentioned, are investing this $10 million in expanding mental health services so that campuses can have in-person counseling on-site uh, that students can go to when they need support. But then more broadly, we've got to work on overall wellness. Are students feeling connected to peers? Does every student have an adult on campus? Could be a faculty member, could be a staff member that they've connected with and can support them? Yeah. Uh, do they feel like there's a sense of community where they're seen and known uh, by folks on campus? And that wellness piece is really important. It's foundational to mental health and well-being. So before we run out of time, I want to zoom out for a second and talk about something completely different, and that's race-conscious admissions. So the Supreme Court earlier this year effectively struck down affirmative action, saying you can't consider race in admissions anymore. How does that change things for the SUNY system? I went to SUNY Albany, and my campus was incredibly diverse. And for me, coming from a predominantly white area of the state, it was incredible exposure that was incredibly beneficial to me. How do you move forward? Yeah, I mean, I love hearing that reflection on your experience. <laughs> Diversity is so important to the learning experience for our students, to the intellectual community for our, for our faculty and for our students. Yeah. Uh, it's a core value for SUNY. Taking away the tool of race conscious admissions is going to make it harder for our most selective colleges in the country. And primarily for us, it's our, our university centers, our graduate programs, our medical schools. Those are the places where the decision will have the biggest impact. It's one less tool mm. to, to maintain that diversity. That said, uh, the Supreme Court was clear that there are race-neutral tools looking at low-income status. Is the student the first in their family to go to college? Is the student a veteran? Has the student overcome adversity in their neighborhood or school? Those you can look at, so you're advancing diversity. And the court said that you can look at what a student says in their essay about their own experience, the role that race may have played in their lives. And so we're gonna continue to send the message to all of our campuses that we're gonna use every legal tool available to advance our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do you navigate that? Is it campus by campus? Does it come from SUNY Central? Is it, is it really just a specialized case by case basis? Yeah, you know, because we have such a range of offerings across our campuses, you know, yeah. you might have a different approach to undergraduate admissions at one campus than you have to admission to the medical school or an engineering program at another campus. But we're trying to provide good guidance to all of our campuses on the tools available under the law. And all of our campuses share that commitment to diversity as a talent strategy. Our classrooms are better. The discussions are better. Uh, our ability to prepare uh, leaders for diverse work environments, diverse communities is better yeah. if our campuses are diverse. 
Well, we'll be looking at that, and we'll have to check back in on it as the admissions Absolutely. process moves forward. SUNY Chancellor John King, thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. We'll keep an eye on SUNY as the school year continues, and staying now in education and mental health specifically. The decline in youth mental health has been labeled as the crisis of our time by the U.S. Surgeon General. And if you watch this show, you know that for mental health, there is no quick fix. Whether it's the pandemic, mass shootings, or climate change, the country's youngest generation has a lot on their minds. The research shows us there are ways to help. One of those ways is through after-school programs that engage children and let them express themselves in creative ways. In the Capital Region, one youth organization called YouthFX is doing just that, using civic engagement and art. Producer Catherine Rafferty has this story. Nestled in the south end of Albany, YouthFX is an organization that teaches youth how to create films. The organization has a focus on telling the stories of people of color from communities that have been historically underserved and in need of opportunities for training in digital media technology. It has grown over the last 16 years from a summer program to year-round after-school programming. Jasmine Garousing, a student who participated in the summer program last year, says it's important for youth stories to be heard. It's a very open space, so being able to talk to people who do understand that art is like a healing tool. We're not only what they think of us, we're, you know, we're creators, we're artists, we're filmmakers, we're, we're the next generation. It's important for our stories to be told because our voices matter and we should be in charge of our future. Making films and community creates a welcoming and free space for youth to express themselves says co-founder Bawen Suchek. I think we underestimate the amount of time that young folks spend in their day stifling who they really are so that they have to kind of put on like a facade or perform for a particular kind of, you know, teacher or class or, you know, they're trying to get good grades. Like there's all these pressures and it's like, where do they get to just kind of let their shoulders down and relax, you know? And I think art and artistic practice is really, for me at the core of that, is for us to just be able to kind of express it. And I think film is is really, you know, an incredible medium for that. Suchak also sees art making as a way to process through experiences that are often difficult to talk about. Living in a community, in a city, in spaces that are highly under-resourced and are, have been systemically, you know, disadvantaged for decades, centuries. I think what we see a lot of is safety issues um, and, and that uh, across all realms of what that means, personal, community, family. Um, gun violence is a really big issue. Addiction is a really big issue. The other thing I don't hear a lot of people talk about is the, the lack of access to arts and culture. And I think that what they do in their films and in the work that they're, that they're making, they're creating, is addressing some of those things. We're really about trying to make sure that they feel that those are topics that they can talk about, because often they can't talk about it. Suchek noticed the pandemic heightened the stress that youth were experiencing, and the inclusive space their program provides allowed the youth to open up about how they were feeling. He called Dr. Caroline Sharkey, visiting assistant professor at UAlbany School of Social Welfare and former teacher at the Albany Free School, to be a trauma-informed consultant for the organization. So trauma-informed is a framework. 
And it's an idea that there are key principles that can outline the ways that any space and any place that we interact with others um, can be responsive to what's going on in their lives. But responsiveness doesn't necessarily mean direct treatment. We have to recognize that there's a scope of practice. I mean, there are things that you are going to need a mental health professional for. When we talk mental health, we're not just talking about the constellations of signs and symptoms that we can assign a disorder to. We're talking about stress. We're talking about traumatic stress. We're talking about fear and uncertainty. And those are a part of our world all the time. But I think collectively in 2020 and beyond that, we started to experience it across all demographics and all socioeconomics. And at the front of that experience were young people saying, we need to do better. While Shargi was there, she wanted to continue her research into positive youth development and socially engaged art. She decided to pursue her PhD dissertation in collaboration with YouthFX. So starting in May of 2022, uh, we began a research process uh, called Youth Participatory Action Research. So young people helped me to develop the research questions for what we were going to be looking at to understand and chronicle how digital storytelling can be a tool for positive youth development and the creation of what's called a sense of community. But we did so using documentary film footage, Really, we captured pretty much every minute of the film program mm -hmm. throughout all six weeks of the program. Um, but we also conducted interviews that were co-facilitated by young people and myself to understand uh, what young people were experiencing and how a program like this can help address some of the concerns that they have about traumatic stress uh, and to prepare them again for that trajectory of positive youth development. In conversation with the students, Sharkey identified their top three sources of traumatic stress. The first was community violence. The second was economic insecurity. And the third was adultism. Adultism is a social bias towards adults, the needs, the interests, the voices of adults. The message that adultism sends is you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a place at the table. You don't have a voice yet. And that was really disheartening to hear. So when we talk mental health, we're not just talking about the neurological or the genetic or the biological factors. We're talking about the social factors that create so much stress that we start to have traumatic stress responses. And that might include fight, flight, freeze, feign, but it also includes isolation and a mm -hmm. sense of social exclusion. And that is a public health uh, crisis. Research shows that after-school programming, particularly art-based extracurriculars, have positive outcomes for students, youth development in academics and civic engagement. In a study by National Endowment for the Arts, researchers found that youth who participated in arts-based activities were more likely to participate in other activities, voting and volunteering. They also found that students who had intensive arts experiences in high school were three times more likely than students who lacked those experiences to earn a bachelor's degree. So if we're thinking about how do we address this massive tsunami of worries and risks and problems, it's one solution, but it's not the only solution. But one idea is to bring in more arts-based programming and more opportunities for storytelling, narratives and counter narratives, mm -hmm. because who people are, how they see the world and the experiences they have, that's data. 
that can teach us a lot, and it's an outlet. Suchak and Sharky are now looking to share what they learned while working together with other after-school organizations. Like all youth programming outside of schools, and schools need more social workers too, um, need to have social workers on site because you know, we are doing our thing as educators, as artists, and we need that support with people that are trained, you know, that have the ability to kind of move through that. Because I think at the end of the day, it's like, the young folks are always gonna tell you what's going on. It's whether or not you're hearing it or listening to them. Sharkey says organizations can work to create a safe space for youth by acknowledging trauma and its impact. Understanding that trauma is real, um, what the signs and symptoms of traumatic stress are, and that there are multiple paths for healing and recovery. We can't always guarantee that safe spaces are going to be safe, but we can guarantee respect and inclusion, and we can build towards an enhanced sense of safety so that young people, or anyone for that matter, can know and trust that that's a space that they can be who they need to be. I've worked with young people for the better part of 25 years, and it is uh, really heartwarming to know that there's an organization that truly invests in the notion, the simple notion, that young people innately have agency. Uh, and it sounds really straightforward, but unfortunately a lot of youth-centered programming doesn't really embrace that concept. Um, and for social workers, it's really important that uh, we bring this notion and we bring this sense of resiliency and resistance um, and then youth-driven empowerment to the forefront so that we can start to think beyond risk factors and protective factors and start to think about the ways we can engage communities. And we have more resources on youth mental health online. We'll link to them along with this week's show on our website. As always, that's at nynow.org. We'll see you next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.